Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. Hey listeners, uh, welcome to Season 7 of Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's hard to believe we're already uh, into Season 7. We've got a a great lineup this fall for this uh, long-form show of Charlotte Readers Podcast that releases every Tuesday. I had a great time recording with these authors uh, this summer, and I look forward to you getting a chance to hear them talk about their their work and uh, their writing lives. We're going to start today with poetry with Danny Romine Powell. She, she's been a part of the literary scene in Charlotte for many, many years, and uh, we're going to talk to her about her, uh, her literary life and uh, also have her read some of her poetry from her recent book. More about her in just a moment. Uh, but first, uh, let me just tell you, you can find out uh, the complete details of the lineup uh, for the fall season here. Uh, at our news page uh, at the website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. Uh, you can also keep up with what's coming by uh, subscribing to our uh, newsletter, uh, our email list, which is on the website. Uh, we, we're not going to spam you. That that takes too much time, as I said. But uh, every couple of weeks, uh, you'll get a get a newsletter that gives you a lineup of, uh, of what's coming, both on the uh, Season 7 and on the Under the Cover show. Um, also, we're going to put it out on social media. But uh, just briefly, let me just let me just tell you who's coming because I'm excited about this lineup. Uh, as I said, Danny Romine Powell starts today uh, on September the 8th. We have John Russell. Uh, he, he's a novelist uh, whose recent work is uh, called All the Right Circles. On September 15th, uh, Rebecca McClanahan uh, talks about her new book, In the Key of New York City: A Memoir and Essays. And then on September 22nd, we have Kevin Winchester uh, and his novel, Sunflower Dog. Uh, on uh, September the 29th, we have Gail Peck. Gail is uh, uh, the 2020 Irene Blair Honeycutt Lifetime Award winner, uh, and she's going to be uh, talking about her uh, journey in poetry and reading some of her poetry. Uh, then on October the 6th, we have Joe Mills. Uh, uh, and his book, uh, Bleachers, which are 54 connected works of fiction. On October 13th, Lee Madalone and her novel, Homemaking. October 20th, Heather Bell Adams uh, and her novel, The Good Luck Stone. Uh, and then we have on uh, October the 27th, 
Dixie Gamble in her memoir, Witch Hairs. November 3rd, uh, Charlie Lovett uh, with his uh, latest uh, novel, Escaping Dreamland. November 10th, uh, Kathleen Birkinshaw uh, in her novel, The Last Cherry Blossom. On November 17th, we have Anthony Abbott. He is a 2020 inductee into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. We'll be talking about uh, his uh, uh, literary life and uh, having him read some of his poetry. On November 24th, uh, we have Joy Calloway uh, and her books, The Fifth Avenue Artist Society and Secret Sisters. Uh, and then for the final episode of uh, Season 7, on December 1st, we have two poets, Christopher Davis with his uh, book Oath and Allison Hutchcraft with her book Swale. So said, it's, uh, it's a great group of authors. Uh, uh, with that, Season 7 and also uh, the Friday releases under the cover should be a great uh, great fall on the Charlotte Reese Podcast. Look forward to having you uh, listen uh, to the podcast. And so without anything further, uh, let's jump into today's episode uh, with Danny Romine Powell, author of In the Sunroom with Raymond Carver and other books and publications. Susan Ledvingson, author of Wave is If You Can See Me, says Danny Powell's poems are insightful and smart, and her gift for the perfect metaphor continues to feel effortless and natural. She finds humor in some of the bumps life amply provides, so that even poems dealing with difficult moments and tough issues leave the reader feeling uplifted. Patricia Hooper, author of Wild Persistence, calls the book a treasure, and Joseph Bethanti, North Carolina poet laureate and author of The Thirteenth Sunday After Pentecost, says that in the sunroom with Raymond Carver, underscores Danny Romaine Powell's abiding reputation as a poet of breathtaking candor and precision, the consummate craftswoman who painstakingly parses syllables into words as if sifting for gold. Danny starts the show with a reading of the title piece in the book, In the Sunroom with Raymond Carver. In the Sunroom with Raymond Carver, October. Here in my bright sunroom, you, Raymond Carver, grinning, your cap and sweater like those of the young boys in the poem Happiness. Here's the thing, Ray. May I call you Ray? Alive, you were older than I. Dead, however, you are only 50. And now, unbelievably, I have a son your age. A son, I might add, who drinks night and day. I have a question. Sure, Ray, go ahead. Prop your feet on the coffee table. That's fine. In your poem about Christine, you said, Daughter, you can't drink. You said, It will kill you like it did your mother and me. Did she listen, Ray? Did she stop? Alcohol is killing my son, too. He doesn't listen. He keeps right on. So here's the real question. How did you manage to grab at happiness, Ray, even while Christine drank her life away? In the poem for Tess, you said that at times you felt so happy you had to quit fishing. You said how you lay on the bank with your eyes closed, listening to the sound the water made and to the wind in the tops of the trees. That's a lot of happy, Ray. I want that too. I'm older now than you, and before I die, I want to feel the wind in my hair. I want to feel it 
down to the roots. I want to wrap my arms around the world and sing, but the words get stuck in my throat, Ray. They get stuck, and all that comes out is his name. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this episode. Um, um, I learned when we were talking before uh, the podcast here about a connection that we have, sort of this six degrees of separation. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to put it together here for just a second. You and your husband live in a house in Charlotte that was once owned by Wilton Garrison and his wife Eudora. Correct. Correct. All right. Now, in Jack Claiborne's book about the history of the Charlotte Observer, he notes that Wilton Garrison was one of the significant additions added to the staff in 1936. And here's what he says. He says, Wilton was a pipe-smoking, easily South Carolina native whose coverage of Spartanburg's 1936 American Legion Junior Baseball Champions caught the eye of one Jake Wade, who hired him as his assistant. Now, Jake Wade was a sports editor of the Charlotte Observer during that time, but he was also my grandfather. <laughs> so isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, it is. So so Wilton Garrison succeeded Jake Wade as sports editor of the Charlotte Observer. And so it seems you succeeded to Wilton Garrison's house. Is that That's right? That's right. And don't forget Eudora. Eudora was the food writer at the Observer and very, very well known. I mean, people still recognize her name. Yeah, yeah. So it is small world, right? Small yeah. world. Yeah. She used to bring the Observer vacuum cleaner home during her lunch hour to vacuum the house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's an interesting side there. Uh, all right. Now, now, Danny, you've been a fixture in the uh, Charlotte literary scene for many, many years uh, with your work at the Observer and with your own writing. And uh, so, you, you know, what I'd like to do is uh, talk about that a little bit, because long before there were literary podcasts, uh, or podcasts at all, you were highlighting, you know, the work of authors and you were doing it with, you know, reviews in the newspaper. And Mark West, who recently featured you on his storied Charlotte blog, did a feature on you and talked about how you came to the scene in 1975 and you became the book editor. So I'd kind of like to start there with, uh, you know, being you know this young book editor for the Charlotte Observer. What was it like during that time? Um, and let's talk about a little bit about the progression. I can't begin to tell you how much fun it was. And it was such an accident that I got the job. I I found out that it was open, that the job, <clears throat> that they needed somebody. And I applied, but it turned out that the reason I got the job was because somebody on the copy desk 
had seen a poem of mine somewhere. Actually, it was a poem in the Paris Review. And she said, you need to hire her. She's really good. And then later she said, I've never read a column of yours I liked as well as that poem that was in the magazine. So she was very blunt. But it was such a a glorious, absolutely wonderful time. Not only did I have the pick of writers to interview, but the writers in the newsroom were so great. There was Doug Marlett was there. He was a cartoonist. Fry Gilliard, Dot Jackson, Kays Gary, people you I know you, Landis, have heard of all your life. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was Polly Paddock, Richard Michelle. It was just a it was a great, wonderful time. And Harriet Dorr was still there, who had been the book editor a bit before me. And I, I was crazy about Harriet. And actually, we were in a writer's group together. But I'll I'll pause and let you ask. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit curious as to, uh, you know, because I get submissions for the podcast and, you know, uh, more people are finding out about it. So I'm getting more books. I'm getting more um interest in it. And I'm sure that during this time, you were getting lots and lots of books that came to you as, you know, the book reviewer from publicists, from authors. What did that pile of books look like? And how did you get go through them and kind of sort through and figure out what you were going to write about? Well, Harriet had once told me that she said, there are so many books, but you will learn to know a good book by its feel. And she was right about that. But um, I would say we probably got 500 books a week. Wow. And uh, we, one editor, Dave Lawrence, came to me one day and he said, have you ever heard the term triage? And I really had not. And he explained what it was. He said, that's what you need to do with the books. Uh, the ones that are just, you know, you're never going to do anything with, get rid of them. So that was a very good lesson for me. But actually... At that time, and now still, there were so many wonderful writers in North Carolina that they always rose to the top. Daphne Athis was publishing, Reynolds Price, Doris Betts, you name it, you know, and then pretty soon Lee Smith came along down in Charleston, Josephine Humphrey. So we had riches right under our feet. Yeah, you said, and you you did reflect in that, uh, article that uh, blog article that uh, Mark wrote about uh, this past, and you talked about how initially Charlotte had to sort of reach back to people like Carson McCullers to say they had novelists from the area, but then over time we started to get our own, and North Carolina sort of become the writing estate because we have so many authors and writers in North Carolina. Definitely. And yet you ended that. Uh, I thought this was interesting. You said you talked about the difference in how much you were doing with book editing, I mean, book reviews then versus now, uh, you said, funny, isn't it? When the Larry Pickens were slim, the Observer's book page flourished. And now that the writers are flourishing, where's the book page? (laughs) Where's the book page? Right. We really didn't have any novelists in uh, Charlotte when I started. And now the the woods are full of novelists. Uh, everybody seems to be writing a novel, and they're good novels. I mean, these are novels that get on the bestseller, the New York Times bestseller list. Case in point, Megan Miranda, who's all all over the place, and she lives in Huntersville. Yeah, you mentioned Megan Miranda. We had Megan on in season six uh, when her uh, book released uh, in June. Um, 
of this past uh, season. Um, and she's, she's a really good writer. And we've had, I was looking at the list you mentioned in, in the article uh, that Mark wrote and you, just a lot of the names there. And I've had been fortunate to have a number of those on the, on the podcast. So it is, what do you think? I mean, is it in the water? What happened? I mean, how, how do we get, uh, how did we start evolving? What, what people say is that for a long time, Chapel Hill was turning out <clears throat> all the novelists because of the writing program there. But now we have writing programs other places too. And, and, Charlotte just happens to be a place for, that's attractive for people to move to. I mean, we have moved from being not a small town, but a medium-sized city to being a huge city. So it attracts more people. That's true. That's true. So, okay, well, let's talk about for a minute the opening poem in the sunroom with Raven Carver. Uh, you have this sort of spiritual conversation with the man. And uh, before we talk about the poem, I'd like to talk about Raymond Carver and what drew you to his writing? Well, I particularly love his short stories. Um, and he was a recovering alcoholic, and he did recover. And he writes a lot about um, being an alcoholic. And I've always just found him fascinating. Even if he didn't write about that, I like the style of his writing. So he's always been a favorite of mine. And... Um, a friend loaned me a book about him. It's actually well illustrated with photos. I just fell in love with the book. And in the book, he talks about his daughter, who was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic, whatever she is. Um, anyway, that poem just bubbled up in me because I was <clears throat> dealing also with a son who was having a lot of trouble with addiction. He is now sober. I'm happy to say. Yeah, that's great. So I was looking up Raymond Carver. Um, you know, he, he was putting out, you know, his books and was being popular when I was uh, focused more on sports in high school and <laughs> not as much li literature like that. But uh, uh, it's he says that he's sort of an Amer American short story writer and poet, but whose focus was on brevity uh, a bit. And I guess so that, that ties in well to poetry, uh, trying to get to the to the point, I suppose. Um, well, he also and, writes poetry. It's just that I like his short stories. His short stories are what drew me to him. Okay, great. Well, let's talk a little bit about the poem itself here. Um, you reveal uh, to Raymond Carver and to the reader some deep pain that you were having about your own son, who's an alcoholic. And uh, you just talked about how uh, he had a daughter who was an alcoholic, but he himself also struggled with with uh, alcohol, he drank heavily, and and you asked him this question in the poem, um, you know, how he grabbed at happiness, and I was just uh, curious um, how you grabbed at happiness over the years that you were struggling with this concern for your own child. Well, I think you can be happy and still have an anchor on your heart. Um, <clears throat> days would go by when I didn't consciously think about being in pain, but I was always in pain. It's just part of it. It's just what you live with. And you get used to it, and you don't get used to it. Um, now that he's sober, one day at a time, and I have to always remember it is one day at a time, I can let go of some of that pain. Yeah, you said he's, uh, I believe he's around 52 years old and he's been sober a year and a half, you told me. and uh, Yeah, a little more than a year and a half now, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. How long were you, uh, was he struggling and you struggling with this? Oh, since story? he was 16. <laughs> oh, wow. So that yeah. did. He's that, had that, periods of sobriety before. Um, but uh, I used to ask people in AA, who do you know who got sober in this age and that age? And a lot of people said, you know, it took me till I was 50. It took me till I was 53. Um, that's just folklore. But I've, I've known people who've gotten sober uh, 30 years ago, never took another drink. That's That seems to be unusual, but it happens. So when did you write this poem? It, not that long ago, actually. Um, I think less than two years ago, maybe about 18 months ago, maybe not even that long ago. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me how, um, of course, Raymond Carver, you talk about the fact that uh, he was 50 when he died, and now your son is 52 and you're older. And so he, it's been a while since he's been writing, of course, and uh, yet that memory, that tie to him kind of percolated as you were thinking about this. How, how, did, how did you make that connection? Well, I'm used to interviewing writers and a lot of people have said to me, in fact, my son said to me, my gosh, mom, did you actually get to interview Raymond Carver? Was he really in our sunroom? Well, no, he wasn't, but, <laughs> but the situation felt very normal to me to, um, be asking him that. And and I guess that's a question that I've asked people for years and years. How do you maintain your own happiness when something is uh, deeply hurting you? And it's, it, it's not answerable, really. But except in moments. I mean, I think uh, when... I don't fish, but I, my father did. And I understand the bliss that comes from fishing. And I, and I also understand the bliss that comes from writing. And anytime I was writing, I never was in pain. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, my dad loved fishing. Um, he would go out in his boat and fish whether you call anything or not. And I took up fly fishing a few years ago and really enjoyed the peace and solitude of being in the river. Um, and those two things, you're right. Oh, at least for me, Danny, those two things, writing and being in a river and let, and hearing the water, you know, whatever troubles you took into that space, you leave behind. That's exactly right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was reading an essay by a, the poet Louise Glick the other day, and she said what poets miss when they're not writing is that deep concentration that you feel when you're trying to make a poem work. And she said that's what we hanker after, not publication, not praise, not getting a book out, but we, we long for that time when we're back into that deep concentration because it blocks out everything else. And it's just so pleasurable. Don't you well, that, find that? I, I do find that when I'm at my computer writing um, and focused on what I'm doing, um, somebody could 
you know, steal my car out of the driveway. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly know. Right. Uh, and the same thing's true with fly fishing. Uh, it's a complicated, it's more complicated than you think you're focused on. Okay. Where should, where's the fish? What should, what are they eating? Uh, what's the river doing? What, you know, where should I be standing? You know, all these yeah. things you're, you're focused on. That's interesting. All right. We won't, we won't spend all the time talking about, uh, that part of uh, focus. Uh, let's, let's do this. We're going to have seven poems that you're going to read today, three more before the break and four after the break. We're going to do some writing life discussion, that kind of thing. Um, but you selected uh, this next poem. It's called uh, The Bag. And it, it picks up on a, on a part of your life, I suppose, where you were struggling with worry for your son. This was at a time when he was drinking, I presume. Yes. Yeah. Anything else you want to say to set this up, the, sort of the time period involved, what else was going on in your life at the time? Well, this was probably 10 years ago, and it's um, it's it's just actually true. I mean, it's a factual poem, very factual, the bag. The sheriff from the next county calls to say someone found our son's duffel bag in the autumn woods. We meet the deputy all close shave sympathy and stiff beige at a shopping center near the county line. He hands over the bag, bulging with last summer's trouble. I'd watched him pack the shiny black thing, cigarettes, journal, pens, his beloved vodka wrapped in a shirt, that stupid scented candle in a jar. I'll be back tomorrow, he'd said. Finally, the inevitable call, the fan of airy promises, the lost cell phone and broken glasses. Now the bag rides on my lap, heavier than a bag of dirt, clumsier than a sack of bones. Now, that must have been a difficult time uh, for you because by all accounts, it looks like uh, maybe something terrible has happened to your son. We never knew when something terrible was going to happen. We lived with a thousand deaths. Yeah. So do you still have the bag? <laughs> he may have it somewhere. <laughs> you gave I it back. I can't tell you how many cell phones he lost and how many pairs of glasses. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're going to shift from your son. Your next poem is called uh, Once We Had a Daughter. And you can sort of tell from the first line that there's a clue there where you say, though she wasn't actually ours. Uh, so I think you told me you didn't really have a daughter. I don't have a daughter, <laughs> but I have someone who feels like a daughter. And that's my granddaughter. And because of certain circumstances, she was with us a great deal when she was little. And um, when she was in the uh, fifth grade, she moved to South Carolina. And that just broke our hearts. This poem was a totally unconscious poem. It started with an image of that balloon going up in the air, which actually happened. And it was like this poem tumbled out of me. It's emotionally true, and I'm sorry it leads the reader to believe that we had a daughter we lost, 
we had a granddaughter who moved away. But this is the emotional truth of it. <clears throat> so before you read it, uh, you talked about conscious and unconscious. Uh, how often in your writing does do you have, you know, the conscious, the focused, I, I'm going to try to f- go here with my poem, and how often is it just, as you say, tumble out of the universe? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I would say one in 50 times it just tumbles out. Um, that's that's when you feel like you lightning has struck you. You never know when it's going to happen. All the stars have to be aligned absolutely properly. Uh, and you just you have to be feeling pretty good, I think. You have to be rested. And I mean that seriously. But it'll just, you you start to, you start with an image and the rest of it, just like Jack and Jill, just tumbles after. So you must have had this image of your granddaughter and you are thinking about the loss, perhaps, that they're moving out of state. And uh, Well, I'm thinking of that balloon sailing up in the sky. We were actually at Dean and DeLuca and she was in a stroller. She held on to a balloon and it just went up and the three of us just watched it disappear. And I guess my unconscious linked that with her disappearance. But this is the first time I thought of of that, that that was the link. Yeah, I I understand this myself personally, emotional truth. We have children and uh, are very proud of their independent spirit, uh, but uh, that comes with willingness to move away, right? Right. Oh, yes. They've moved away and uh, have to get on a plane to go see our son. And of course, we're not doing that now. And our daughter's thinking about moving farther away. So, uh, you know, that is that is a that is a loss in and of itself. We have to tie him to the bedpost. Now, that's a very immature, irrational response. But don't you just want to tie him to the bedpost? Never mind. I didn't say that. Once we had a daughter, though she wasn't exactly ours. We bathed her and kissed her and rocked her to sleep. Oh, she was a keeper, that girl. One day, maybe a Saturday or Sunday, we bought her a red balloon. She sat in her stroller and held it by the string, our three faces open to the sky. She let go, or maybe she held on, and we watched the balloon float away and away into the enormous blue. Some days we try to remember, you let go, I say. No, you, he says. I remember it was you. There they and, go, into the enormous blue. We can't hold them back. And really no one let go, right? It just happened. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Although you try to point fingers, no, no. Exactly. It, it, yeah. It just happened. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, that, that was very nice. I want to shift now to a poem that uh, is a little bit of a theme here that's going to start developing in some of the uh, readings we have here. Uh, the poem is, I woke today thinking about Chloe Robinson. And first, I want you to tell us who Chloe Robinson is or was. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, <laughs> ooh, I... Well, okay. Chloe Robinson is not this person's real name. I had to disguise it. Um, This is another unconscious poem. I did wake that morning thinking of a person that someone I loved had uh, 
almost married. Okay. Right. So we're getting into the family love thing and uh, you, you wake up <laughs> thinking about her. So that's the theme. We're going to see that in some other poems as we go here. So, right. so in, anytime you're ready. I woke today thinking of Chloe Robinson. You once told me that Chloe Robinson got it into her head. You wanted to marry her. And before you knew it, her mother had selected Chloe's wedding dress and all the bridesmaid dresses, and you had to quickly disabuse her of that crazy notion. Soon after, you married me. So why is it some days I mistake myself for Chloe Robinson, though I have never even seen her photo? There I'll be on a balmy afternoon, walking past a store window, and I'll turn and say, hello, Chloe, to my image in the glass. And always we are wearing a long white gown and the most beautiful translucent veil billows out behind. And the look on our face, well, it's sad. Okay, so um, you wake up, you think of Chloe, not Chloe, but you think of this person. Um and and you said this one tumbled out. So do you, you go and you go write this down? It, this poem kind of raises questions. I think about uh, you know how we find our life partners, why we picked each other, you know why our previous lovers or loves didn't take uh, maybe, or wondering sometimes whether our partner wishes we were more like the previous love they had perhaps, and, and try trying to live up to whatever. But uh, what fascinates me here is he didn't save any pictures, so. What do you think it is, uh, Danny, about, uh, you know, two people who are happy together, maybe not on a particular day in question, but <laughs> generally speaking, that, that that draws them to think back about the what ifs of prior relationships? Well, if we didn't have your question, we wouldn't have many of the poems <laughs> that people write. Um, I think that... I think people are fascinated by former relationships. Um, and I think that they get into our unconscious. And this was a story that fascinated me, At actually. My former husband told it about himself and about this woman, and he and he didn't marry her. And I always imagined her being very sad. What this poem that I didn't have that much control over said to me was that I was sad too. Um, that we were somehow twinned in our translucent veils, looking in the mirror at each other, that, that we had some kind of twinship uh, in that relationship with him. Yeah, perhaps she was sad that it didn't work out, and you were sad that it did. <laughs> well, you said that I didn't. <laughs> no. Well, the only reason I say that is I look. I'm looking at the next page, which is uh, what was it about that first marriage? Uh, we're not reading this poem, but it, it, I, I was drawn to it because of the metaphor that you used about mismatched tables, and 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 how in a relationship um, that maybe is not going well. Um, the tables are mismatched. The poem is about mismatched tables, but it's really about a marriage. You t I mean, you, you talk about this idea that uh, you worked hard uh, to try to get these tables to work together. You even put, 
you know, matching cloths on them, but still the guests would bump their knees up against them and you try to paint them to make them work well together. And then you reflect on why don't we just take them to the curb sooner? You know, That was a dream. Uh, I dreamed about those mismatched tables and I felt so happy when I found the metaphor for those mismatched tables, which was the marriage. Yeah. That's great. All right. So uh, listeners, uh, we're going to have just a, a, a quick break here. Not long, but uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into a couple more poems with Danny. We're also going to do the writing life segment. We've got a wrap up poem as well. So uh, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community. And uh, they're also supporters of the podcast, uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit. Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. Find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team. Check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way, and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes, uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Danny Romine Powell and, and talking about her, her recent poetry book, In the Sunroom, with Raymond Carver. We've been reading and talking poetry. Uh, we're going to do more of that and also talk about a book she she wrote before the uh, hour's up here. 
But uh, first, we've got a poem that uh, Danny's going to read. It's called uh, Longing Remembers the Red Rocker Inn. And Danny, where was the Red Rocker Inn? It was in the mountains. Um, I wish I could remember the town. I don't know whether it's still there. It was a lovely, lovely place. I was writing for the paper what they call Piedmont Guidebooks, which I can't even imagine something as luxurious as that. But they had me visiting and staying in bed and breakfast. And um, so Lou and I went to this one. I think our son was about 20 at the time. So Longing Remembers the Red Rocker Inn. A place in the mountains she and her husband visited years ago The woman who owned it sat on the porch swing and told them that her son had died at 16. Longing couldn't believe how serene the woman seemed, how brave and unscathed. Longing herself was young then, still a brunette and slim, her own son barely 20 and already a drunk. Now he's made it to 40, a miraculous feat though Longing's not making any bets on the next ten. Sometimes Longing wonders what happened to the woman at the end, if she still spends evenings in the swing, one narrow black slipper pushing against the porch floor to keep herself going. Yeah, that's terrible to think about the loss of a child. And, uh, of course, at that time you're having some of your own issues as well with a child who's, who's struggling and always Um, worried that we would lose him. Yeah. Right. So that certainly came to to your mind as you're thinking about the loss of, of her child. But it was also very valuable for me to see that this woman survived. She survived the death of a child. And talk about this third person, uh, nickname longing here. Yes. Um, I think sometimes to gain distance, you use a personification. And throughout the book, when I talk about my son, I use longing in place of the mother. And that just gave me a little distance and hope that it went down a little easier for the reader, too. Because I've had people tell me these poems are too painful for them to read during the pandemic because they're not in touch with their children like they usually are and aren't able to hug them and they just can't tolerate poems about loss. So I think the longing gives it distance. I hope it does. And at that point in your life, what were you longing for? Him to be sober. And now that he is, uh, what are you longing for? <laughs> Another subject. <laughs> <laughs> Another subject. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, well, that'll be fun for him to know that he was a subject, you know, of your writing. You have to come up with some, some other prompt, right? <laughs> By writing. the way, he approved all of these poems before I ever sent them to the publisher. Okay. That's great. Yeah. What did he think? What did he think? He, um, he felt sad. Um, but he also, in a funny way, enjoyed being the center of attention. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, 
Okay, so we're going to do a couple of poems now that uh, get back into this uh, theme of, uh, I don't know, old flames. Uh, you picked out uh, one called While Cleaning Out Old Letters and one called and one called Poem for an Old Miami Boyfriend. So, uh, uh, and I get, I, you know, it, it's uh, interesting to me that, uh, you know, you selected these. One involves your husband's former girlfriend. The other involves a poem. I suppose it's for your former Miami boyfriend. Is that right? Yes. So, so what's good for one's good for the other, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, so this might be a good time to ask this question. Um, how much of your writing over the years has been uh, about you personally and about your family personally, rather than maybe the broader world around you? I don't even know that the broader world exists. Um, <laughs> I am guilty of not getting out of my own backyard very often. My subjects seem to be my family and my emotional life. And uh, that's, that's where my fire is. And uh, I probably at my age am not going to go much farther afield. So it's kind of what memoir and poetry is that the idea? It's uh, yeah, I think that's yeah. a very wonderful way of putting it. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's start out with uh, while cleaning out uh, old letters. Uh, we are. Let me find mine here as well. When I found this letter, and I did find a letter in which this old girlfriend had said to me, "When at last he was mine." I knew instantly I had gold in my hand and I knew that I was going to have so much fun with this poem. And I did. It was just, I won't say it actually wrote itself because I did a lot of revising and a lot of revising. Uh, but, oh, it was just rollicking fun for me. <laughs> While cleaning out old letters to me from my husband's former girlfriend, I find one in which she uses the phrase, when at last he was mine, referring to none other than my own. Why I didn't notice those words at the time, I can't tell you. When exactly was he hers? My husband, of course, swears he can't remember. When at last he was mine carries a kind of rough danger, a ruthless capture, as if she fished him up from the ocean, arching her back to reel him in, the line taut, or lassoed him at a rodeo, hauling him home dusty and broken, she in a flannel shirt, sweating like a cowpoke. At other times, when at last he was mine, gives me a shivery thrill, conjuring moons and moors, crashing waves, suggesting midnight balconies and palm-to-palm -palm declarations of love. When at last he was mine, when at last he was mine, I've taken to whispering in my husband's ear. Rarely have I felt such ardor. <laughs> or, or, or or amusement, right? Right. <laughs> it's always something you can hold, right, over him. Yeah. Right. 
at last he was mine. So, so he, he took the fifth. He said, I swear I can't remember uh, right. you know, when exactly that happened. The funny uh, thing is he loves this poem. I guess it's the idea of two women, you know, right. uh, in a tussle over him. But uh, he's crazy about it. I mean, he yeah. doesn't say he is, but when he hears me read it, he gets this look on his face like he would like to listen forever. <laughs> That's great. Uh, palm to palm decorations of love going through his head, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's shift to your uh, Miami boyfriend, um, poem for an old Miami boyfriend. Um, tell us where this came from. Well, uh, it came, it, I grew up in Miami, and Miami is a different country than the rest of the world. I mean, the rest of the United States. It's subtropical. None of the plants are the same. The sky is different. The weather is different. And in a way, I wanted to get a lot of that down. So um, it, the poem became a vehicle, really, for describing Miami. At the same time, sort of a remembrance of an old boyfriend. Poem for an old Miami boyfriend. Because I won't be there when he dies... Ask if he remembers the banyan tree, its roots braving the air for something beyond reach. Ask if he remembers the thin wash of tide teasing our feet in the early cove of morning, the purple streaks of sky after rain, gray rooftops glazed with blue. Ask if he remembers the texture of flesh in the warm breath of dark, all the sad clocks calling us home. Hold the cup to his lips, hold his hand, because I won't be there when he dies. Ask if he remembers how true the little worn boat, its wild bluster. So you didn't have any letters that uh, your husband found that uh, related to this story? <laughs> no, but uh, that would make a good point, too. That would make a good point. Uh, so how how close in proximity did these two poems get written together? Uh, the, the last one, the old boyfriend thing, was uh, about three years ago. It was in the North Carolina Literary Review, and the— uh, Old boy, the old girlfriend poem was more recent. Okay, that's great. All right, let's do this. Let's shift a minute uh, to the writing life uh, for a second, uh, Danny. Um, so, you know, my belief is that writers are constantly learning. Uh, they're they're all, always working on their craft. Uh, you know, I learn with this podcast. I, a great time interviewing authors and learning from their experiences. I think you did this too to some extent. Uh, with some interviews that you did and a book you wrote. Uh, and although we're talking about primarily poetry today, I would like to talk about this book a second. Some of the people you interviewed and some things you learned. The book was called Parting the Curtains, Interviews with Southern Writers. And it came out in 1995. But uh, the people that you interviewed, I mean, this is just a who's who's list of, uh, of writers. And uh, let's talk about some of those writers that you interviewed for just a moment. Oh, I was so lucky. Uh, I actually got to interview Eudora Welty at her house in Jackson, Mississippi, when she was 79 years old. 
And she, I asked her what her perfect day was, and she told me, and she was so excited telling me she clapped her hands and said, oh boy, and I'd like to have another one just like that. I got to interview Walker Percy uh, in Highlands, uh, North Carolina, sitting out on a porch overlooking a lake, and uh, William Styron. And of course, Pat Conroy, he was he was always around. He was such a good interview. Lee Smith was wonderful. Kay Gibbons was wonderful. Doris Betts, uh, Alan Gerganus, Gail Godwin. Oh, the list goes on. James yeah. Dickey. I was going to say James Dickey. He was a poet and author of Deliverance, which they made it. Was. Yeah. yeah. Did you talk? Did you talk about Deliverance when you interviewed him? We did not talk about deliverance, but oh, he had some of the most wonderful quotes. And I'd love to tell you one thing he said. He said, there's a difference in writers. You can watch people playing tennis. Some tennis players are out there to win. Others are out there not to lose. And he said, it's the writers who are out there to win who are going to make it. He, um, he, he was just he was wonderful and he talked about how a poem came to him and he, he compared it to a crystal radio. He he was one of the most quotable people. And so was Alan Gerganus. Well, so was Walker Percy. So was Eudora Wealthy. They were all absolutely wonderful, including Simmons Jones, who was from Charlotte and wrote his first novel when he was 71. What all of them had in common, it seems to me, including Reynolds Price, they were dedicated to their writing. Nothing got in the way of it. They were uh, loyal, loyal to their computers. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Eudora Welty. She was a short story writer, but also a Pulitzer Prize winner for The Optimist's Daughter. And uh, Walker Percy, his first novel, The Moviegoer, won the U.S. National Book Award in 1961. Uh, William Styron, who you interviewed, right? Uh, yes. Author of Sophie's Choice. Uh, Reynolds Price, author of 38 novels. Lee Smith, you mentioned, uh, you know, award-winning writer here in North Carolina. Um, and then Shelby Foote. Oh, he was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So I think most people got to know Shelby Foote uh, for the Ken Burns documentary. Yes. Uh, because he had that sort of low key, just a matter of fact, a little twang to his voice as he explained things so matter of factly about what happened in the Civil War. T tell me about Shelby Foote. Well, I inter got to interview him at his house in Memphis, and my husband went with me, and he said, you know, you took, he said to my husband, you took a photograph of my son and me, and here it is right here in my entrance hall, which was really such a wonderful coincidence. He said something wonderful. He said, uh, read a writer from the beginning to the end, take his first novel all the way to the last one see where he rises and see where he falls off. He said, most writers never realize they're falling off. They always think their last book is their best. But he said, if you're an astute reader, you can see how they peak and how they fall off. And he talked about that particularly with Faulkner. Why do you think that is or why did he hold that viewpoint? 
Uh, well, I think Shelby Foote was just a very, uh, very astute himself and in his judgment of what was good writing. And I think he could see the falling off. Yeah, I'm just curious about what it, what do you think it is that causes a writer to fall off? Because you, you would think, you know, that they would learn and continue to learn and continue to grow, unless, of course, the pressures of publishing and other things catch up and they make shortcuts and so forth. It, one thing could be age. Another could be complacency. Another could be losing that ability to be self-critical and listening to the world more than to themselves. You have that early on, but you can tend to lose it. That's interesting. That's interesting. So um, did you do these interviews as part of your work uh, for The Observer, or was this a project that you took on separate from that to write this book? No, I did it for The Observer. Um, And the reason I did it was uh, sort of a secret mission of my own. My father had always said to me, time is money, money is time. Therefore, I didn't think I should indulge in writing poetry because you certainly don't make any money with poetry. So I had to sort of earn my permission to write poetry. And I did it stealthily by interviewing these writers and hearing them talk. I didn't ever reveal why I was doing it, but hearing them talk about how they gave themselves permission. And most of them didn't even need to give themselves permission. They just did it, especially the males. I remember one of the first things I wrote down for myself that Reynolds Price had said, what what do you need to do to get a novel written? Here's what he said, a time, a place, a quota. (laughs) Now, he never mentioned talent. But ah. he he was a very practical man, a time, a place, a quota. And, and what about Pat Conroy? He was very generous to other authors. He was oh, always, he was the you know, most generous. Yeah. What what did uh, did he share any words of wisdom with you about uh, writing that you recall? Uh, you know, Pat was so busy um, being a clown when I interviewed him. He, he loved to make people laugh, and it was hard to get him to be serious. The only time I got a really good interview out of Pat was on the telephone, and I made a promise to myself that no matter how many jokes he made, I was going to be silent. And I did not laugh. It was very hard because I knew he, how ba- I knew how badly I wanted to please him, and and he knew I was an easy laugh, so but nothing. And he, he kind of opened up. He, I didn't get any words of wisdom about, about writing, but he did open up about his absolute devotion to his mother uh, in that interview, which was the first time he had done that. Now, I think you told me that you consider this book kind of your Bible. Do you go back to it from time to time and look at it to see? I do. Yeah. I what do. do. You, do you find new things every time you go I back? I find there? new things. I find things. Oh, I didn't remember that he had said that, or I didn't know that. Or yes, it's, it's, I have to say 
it's not my doing, it's their doing. It's full of gems about writing and about the writing life. And, and, and do any come to, I mean, were there any themes that came through? Because a variety of writers here, they took on different types, different topics, uh, some nonfiction, some fiction. Um, was there, were there a couple of uh, themes that ran through the, these experiences that came out of this? I would say two themes. One was writers like to get up early and they like to get to the computer while they're still in a half dream state. That way they have, and that's fiction writers, that way they have more access to their unconscious. The other theme, and you don't hear female writers talking about this, but you hear male writers talking about it, is how to get out of the Methodist choir and into Carnegie Hall. Um, and it, it's, it's about writing smart. And Alan Gerganus is particularly good at this. I wish I could quote him specifically, but I can't. But it's just how not only do you need talent and do you need consistency, but you need a kind of brain power and a kind of savvy to get yourself launched into the big world. And you've been recognized for your writing over the years. What what was the sort of launching point for you and your career that that caused you to think, okay, I think I'm I'm doing something right here? I don't know that I've ever done anything right, but I do have there is one thing that I try to uh, do, and that is to aim high. When I send out poems, and I love to send out poems, most people hate the process. I don't love the process, but I love having poems out to magazines. I aim high. I figure you're never going to get in the Paris Review unless you send poems to the Paris Review. So I have aimed high many, many times, and I have had some good luck by aiming high. And I think that that has um, helped me. It's given me confidence. If Plowshares takes a poem of mine, maybe I'm okay. You know, maybe I'm playing in the right ballpark. Well, you're being modest about your work, but your point is well taken for any writer. Um, it's like that shot you don't take. It's not going to go in if you don't exactly. take it. Yeah. Uh, now, now, Danny, you've been a columnist. Uh, you've done actually some journalism, too, over the years. You wrote this book we just talked about. Um, what drew you to poetry uh, after all those experiences, and how do, how do they help you with your poetry? Well, I think poetry was an accident for me. I never meant to write poetry. But I was in a group of writers early on, and, and I'm still in a group of writers, and some of us have been together for 40 years, believe it or not. Um, but when I first moved to Charlotte, I was in a group of writers. I, I was adamantly a nonfiction writer because I was still listening to my father. Time is money, money is time. But one day, but I've been hearing poetry. And I loved poetry in college and high school, but I'd been listening to it in this group. And one day I was sitting in on my son's um, kindergarten conference 
and looking at the way the sun slanted the uh, window so that it looked like bars were on the floor. It looked like a jail. And a poem fell into my head. It fell into my head. And it felt so wonderful. Those particular muscles had never been touched before. And those muscles in my brain were delighted to be to be found or to be found out. And so I wanted to do it again and again. That's how it started. And otherwise it would never, I never would have been a poet. Now you're still doing some uh, work for the Observer, right? Yeah. You're still write, writing yeah. for them. And uh, yeah. tell occasionally, us, yeah, occasionally, give us an update. A lot of liter literary coverage. <laughs> I got you. That's great. Well, I, I sometimes ask this question, uh, since you got a, a long literary career here, I've done a lot of things in the literary world, uh, and you've written written a number of pieces over the years and been well-published. Um, with all your experience, um, what, what would you tell your younger writing self something you've learned that uh, had your younger writing self known it, it might have made a difference for that person? What an excellent question. If my younger self had known it, I would say take yourself more seriously than you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Believe That's in good. yourself more. Be more like Alan Gerganus. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Figure out how to get out of the Methodist choir. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing I ask sometimes, um, why do you write, Danny? because it feels wonderful. It goes back to that, the pleasure of that kind of concentration. Once you've known that depth of feeling, and I, I don't mean pangs or anything, I mean that the way your brain works in the middle of deep concentration is so pleasurable, you just want it again and again. And are you the type of writer that, has to get up and do your poetry in that dreamlike state, uh, or are you dreaming all day these days? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I do like to write first thing in the morning. That's the very, very, very best time. Yeah. I've heard different authors say different things. Some like to do that. Others, they say they like to get the gnats out of the room and take care of all the no, stuff that has no, to get no. done. I don't yeah. ever care yeah. about taking care of the stuff that has to be get done. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> I do know those people, though. Yeah. Um, so uh, we got one last poem here, Danny. It's uh, the, the last poem in the book. And uh, you selected this uh, as the final reading for today. And uh, just curious uh, why why the last poem in the book and uh, why the last poem we're reading today. Tell, tell us about this poem. Well, I will be so happy to tell you about it. We uh, go to the same house in Highlands every summer. We've been lucky. We rent it, but we've been lucky to get this same house. It's actually the house where I interviewed Walker Percy in 1980. So it's a very sentimental place to me. And uh, one night when we got there, it was so windy. and We had the door, the window open, and the huge trees outside were swirling. And I thought, this is exactly the way it would feel if we weren't here. This is the earth at work. And so it kind of gave me a feeling of 
not immortality, but mortality, that I will be gone and these trees will be making the same sound. In the night, the wind and the leaves swirled and rustled out our open window as if for the first time, as if we never were, the earth newborn, sweet. And what of us, asleep on the too soft bed in the old mountain house? Gone. Also our children, the ones who lived, the ones who died before they grew whole. All night the breeze swirled and rustled through the leaves as if it played a secret game, swirling and rustling all night as if we never were. Yeah, I sometimes look up at the trees and when I'm in the trout stream and the water moving by and thinking, God, this has been here for years and after I'm gone, there'll still be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard, hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, So Danny, this has been great. What's next uh, on your plate? Uh, You're still doing a little work for the observer. You said, Uh, are you still writing, still engaged? You still enjoying that process and part of you? Yes, I'm, I've just finished, and I need to polish it, uh, an essay. I haven't written an essay in years, and I'm still writing poems and still going to my writer's group and on Zoom and still leading a writer's group on Zoom. So I'm filled up with poetry and writing. Well, that's great. We're going to have uh, a lot of the information, the show notes about you, uh, links. Uh, uh, so where, where can people find this book, Danny? Park Road Books has it, and it can be ordered from Press 53. Great. So listeners, uh, check out uh, you know the book cover uh, that's in the show notes, uh, information about Danny and her uh, career here in Charlotte and her other writing. And uh, Danny, thank you so much for spending time with me. I felt a little pressure here. You have all this experience. You've done all these interviews, and I'm sitting here interviewing one of Charlotte, <laughs> Charlotte's finest. And uh, so, you know, we hope we got through it okay. Oh, Landis, you made this so pleasant. And thank you for wanting to interview me. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. 
schedule online at orthocarolina.com. OrthoCarolina, you improved.